The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, welcome back. So, Buddhism challenges us to take this observation of our mind and body all the way, to really decide that we're going to look carefully and not be satisfied with just a surface level understanding of what's going on, not to observe in a sloppy way, coloring our meditation with all kinds of speculative views and long thought trails, but to really let experience be as it is and to see it clearly. Just like we let nature be as it is and try to see clearly what's happening. So this afternoon, we'll begin to talk about what happens when we follow Munindra's advice that we heard this morning. If you want to know how your mind works, sit down and observe it. So this will take us then into the realm of perception and the creation of concepts and thoughts. We live with all kinds of views and theories and assumptions about the world and about our mind and about ourself, um, some of which are only hazily known to us when we start practice. Some of these views and ideas are correct enough, very serviceable, useful in living our lives and some are actually causing harm. And so if we want to take also the advice of the Kalama Sutta that says you should need to know for yourself if practicing something and carrying it out is bringing harm or leading away from harm, uh, we need to look also at this realm of what we're doing with our mind. And then we're also going to look at the process of changing our perceptions and our theories which is not always an easy process, right? Uh, I mean, there are things where we've changed our view relatively simply in our lives. And there are also, especially these deeply held views and ways of seeing things that are not easy to change even when we want to, even when we see them and think, I'd like to perceive this differently. Uh, That doesn't just happen, (laughs) right? That's what Matthew Ricard said. He said, even when we realize that what we want to do is train our mind, there's still the process of actually doing it, Uh, like the the process of learning to play the piano or learning to paint. It, it, It can happen, but it happens because we engage with a process over time. So... You remember the story of the fish from this morning? Um, So the professor in that story, the one who insisted on looking, 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 that was this guy, uh, Louis Agassiz, who was a Swiss-born ichthyologist who became a professor at Harvard. Now it happens that as into observation as he was, he had very clear and fixed views about divine creation. So all of his careful observation that he did confirmed for him that there was an intelligent hand at work in the structuring of life on earth. 
He was an ardent creationist. This was the mid-19th century, so it was the same time that Darwin lived. He never accepted the theory of evolution. He spoke out against it, although he did accept and even contribute to our understanding of geological ice ages. He did some work also in ice ice ages. So he wasn't a biblical literist, literalist. He didn't think that the world uh, came into being in 4000 BCE or whatever it is. 2000 BCE, I don't even remember what, it, what happens if you add up from the Bible. So he wasn't that literal, but he was absolutely certain that, um, that God had created uh, beings and that all of his observations pretty much confirmed that. He also put forth ideas that, according to today's societal standards, are bluntly racist. He claimed that the different human races were created separately and were possibly even different species. And you can guess which race was on the top. So he was a prominent scientist of his time. And he had very strong views that colored how he saw the world. His views completely influenced what he saw. They filtered all the data that he took in. Now this was uh, 150 plus years ago. So it's easy to look back and see how distorted these perceptions are by our current views. But how different are our minds than his, really? Um, What will people a couple centuries from now say about our biases and the way we saw the things here in the beginning of the 21st century? Our minds are certainly not unbiased. So in meditation, we look deeply at the bias that we bring to our experience and we'll see it almost immediately if we're willing to to look at it. Um, So for example, perception. This is an image um, that we, most of us know what that is um, when we see it. There are of course, It's cultural. There are, of course, cultures who don't know what that is. They don't use those. And so, you know, you can understand that immediately your mind had a, I don't know how quick your mindfulness was, if you could see how quickly it was that you had a visual input and your mind told you what that is. You had an understanding of it and there was kind of that click into place. You can observe that process. That's your mind working. That's perception. And So we have a cultural understanding of what this is. It's also, um, in fact, there's another layer to it, which is that it has an H on the faucet, so we know it's a hot water faucet. But um, in France, for example, uh, the hot water faucet has a C on it. (laughs) For us, that has a different meaning, and they have an F on the cold faucet, right? So um, this is also related to the English-speaking world. I guess it would work for German too, but the H and having an understanding of what that means. So the next image I'm going to show um, backs backs off from this, and the poor quality is because I took the picture. This is an actual picture uh, from a retreat center nearby here, Um, and this 
faucet, thing that looks like a faucet, is actually the light switch in the kitchen. And so this challenges our sense. I laughed at this all week while I was looking at it. And it's funny, right, because it, it's a cognitive dissonance. You know, we have a perception. We know what, you know, it's like this is not usually what light switches look like. Um, and sure enough, I observed somebody turning, coming and turning this, and the lights went off. So it worked. I, that's how they set it up. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and we might be aware of how, just how frequently we walk through the world, we have perceptions of everything that we see, mostly, and we, have a, we walk through with an understanding of what all that means and what it all is. You can't live without, without these perceptions, without these ideas and views. It would be impossible to walk into a room because you know, what, what are the rods and cones of our eyes actually see? They see light and dark edges and they see colors. They can see edges where things change and they can see colors. And so we see this whole conglomeration. We get that, that's the raw input. And then we have learned to interpret that as people, chairs, projectors, hot water faucets, and we know what those things mean and what, they, what we're supposed to do with them and so forth. We have a huge amount of memory coming into our understanding of the present moment. That's how perception works, is it matches what we see, what we take in with some known object from the past very quickly. It's a very fast process. But every once in a while, or even more frequently than we think, it's not right. We didn't get it right, or we didn't get it quite right. Or we're, we're not actually seeing, literally, what's in front of us. We're seeing some mixture of that and our interpretation coming in. This is how it works in the mind. And so this starts to raise questions, you know, like, um, what about when I look at a being or at myself? Um, am I seeing that clearly? How is that being played out in a sense? What are we really seeing when we look at our mind-body system? So the Buddha was also aware of this. <laughs> he was very clear about how the mind works. And he talked about Remember that his aim was suffering and the end of suffering. That was what he taught. That was his domain of teaching. And so he was very clear about the types of mental distortion we do that lead to suffering. You know, that was his main interest. And so he identified four what are called distortions of the mind. And there's a, a discourse where he names them called the Vipalasa Sutta. Vipalasa are distortions. They've also been translated as inversions, um, ways in which we're not seeing things accurately, ways that we misperceive. So the first of these is seeing what is impermanent or inconstant as permanent or constant. This is actually a lot, <laughs> a lot of the issue. But... Um, this was named as the first one. And there's so many examples of this. So, I mean, just in our own lives, we are shocked when things end or break or change oftentimes. But how could they not? <laughs> how could they not? They're, they're in flux. 
our car, our house, our relationships, our body, you know, all of these things are not really solid and permanent and unchanging, which we all know, hypothetically. If you go out on the street and you ask people, Gil likes to give this example, you ask people randomly, so do things change or not? I think everybody would say, yeah, they change. Then they don't have to, it's not something that you need to be a Buddhist practitioner to understand that things change. And yet, <clears throat> we haven't quite internalized this really deeply. I mean, maybe a, an example a little that goes a little deeper is that we see other people dying, but we don't tend to believe that it will really happen to us. You know, it's, it's something that happens to everybody else. Everybody else is aging and so forth, but then we're shocked when it happens to us too. <laughs> so there's still some, you know, something not quite being seen clearly. There's a, a sutta, it's kind of a dramatic sutta, but there's one part of it where um, King Yama, who's a mythological figure in Buddhism, questions a person and says, didn't you see elderly people during your life? And the person says, yes. He says, didn't it occur to you, observant and mature, I have not gone beyond aging? And the person says, no, I was heedless, and so on for illness and death also. He's basically saying, didn't you, didn't you observe this? And the person says, well, yeah. He says, well, didn't you think it would apply to you too? Well, no, I didn't think that. So we can ask ourselves if we're in that position too. And then we may notice that our behavior gets out of line with this uh, reality of the understanding of impermanence. So for example, I was talking with someone um, <clears throat> recently who's from Italy, and she told me that the, the city of, of Vesuvius in Italy, um, do you guys know what it's famous for? It has a volcano, exactly. It has an active volcano. This was significant in the history of the Roman Empire, actually. Um, but so two million people live in Vesuvius, and there are these um, kind of small mountain passes that go into the city. It's somewhat protected in that, you know, on the edge of this big volcano. And the city, uh, for a while, had kind of a you know, nominal evacuation plan. But if you actually did the calculation about whether or not, in the amount of time that you have when a volcano goes off to get people out of a city, compared to the volume of traffic that these roads can handle, it did, the calculation didn't actually work. And so people said, you know, this is, it's kind of nice that we have this theoretical evacuation plan, but it doesn't really work. And so the city officials eventually just said, yeah, you're right, we don't actually have a plan. So as far as I know, that's that's just the way it is. Vesuvius is a nice place to live. So people, um, people live there. I also know another Dharma teacher, uh, Mary Grace Orr, who lives in a city called Volcano, Hawaii. <laughs> so named because it's on an active volcano. And it's a little bit different culture there, actually. The people there um, all understand very well that the, uh, the lava comes and goes all the time. And they pretty much understand in the town culture that there's going to come a day when they all get in their cars and go together. <laughs> and there is adequate roads to get out of volcano. 
but you're not taking your house with you when you do that. And that's just part of living there. You know, you just understand that that's the deal if you live on an active volcano. I think it's interesting, like what would have to happen in your mind state for that to be a normal way of living? I think it's kind of cool that there are people with that mindset in the way they go about their lives. So that's the first distortion, is seeing what is impermanent or inconstant as permanent or constant. And then the second one is um, seeing what is actually suffering as pleasant. And we do this too. Uh, We drink three cups of coffee, pretty much out of habit and because it tastes good, not really acknowledging how awful that makes us feel later, or whatever, pick whatever your thing is. Um, So, or more subtly, we engage in various kinds of psychological habit patterns that bring harm, like passive-aggressive behavior, or trying always to please other people, over-pleasing behavior. And, you know, we, we think that that's pleasant. We have kind of a sense of being me when I'm doing that. Um, but if we look at how it actually plays out in our lives, these habit patterns are often bringing some kind of suffering or not, you know, not really beneficial to us. I would say much of practice is about changing our relationship with various mental patterns that are unhealthy. There's, there's just a lot of need to do that. And then the, the third distortion is seeing what is not self as self. And I wish we had more time for this, but I won't, I won't talk about it a lot at this moment. I think it'll come out in some of what else we're talking about. But this is the burden of identification uh, and also includes appropriation, which is taking things to be mine. And the clearest way to see this, I think, is in our body. So we identify with our looks and with our health, um, spending a lot of money on making ourselves look good. But really, all you can see is the first five of the 32 parts of the body, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. That's most of what we can see on a person. It's just the external. And how much of this is really us, really? When we clip our nails in the bathroom and they fall on the floor, it's definitely not us anymore. You know, it was me when it was the nail was on me <laughs> and it was, you know, part of me. But then <clears throat> as soon as I cut it and it's on the floor, then it's something to clean up. Or all that hair that you find in the shower, especially when it's from your partner, not from you. <laughs> it doesn't look as appealing when it's not on their head, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's a way in which these body parts are kind of identified with, but they're not really us. They're very quickly not us when they're in some other form. And then we do this also with our, our thoughts and our views. And this can even be the cause of wars in the end, is my view, my belief, and it's so threatening to me not to have it or to have it challenged uh, that I will, you know, I will fight to defend that. And then the fourth distortion of the mind is seeing what is unattractive as beautiful. And this sounds a little odd to the Western ear. It was intended, I think, mostly to apply once again to the body. So um, most body parts are not that attractive. 
in and of themselves. If you, if you look at a person, you might say, oh, that person is very attractive and there's something about them that's, and we say, oh, I love their eyes and their hair and their buns and whatever it is. Um, but the body parts separately are definitely not very attractive. And if the person's body parts were laid out on the floor, that would not be attractive in the same way. So there's something about looking very carefully at what we consider to be beauty and realizing that has a lot to do with the mind. It's not inherent in the object. That's what's being pointed to here, is to start bringing in the way in which the interaction of our mind with the object is what's creating these impressions. It's also quite profound to just consider just contemplate how much suffering comes from these four issues of impermanence, suffering, self, and attraction. Like how much of the suffering of the world happens because of not seeing those correctly or not being able to hold them lightly enough. Huge amounts of suffering. Okay, so now I want to um, shift a little bit and point out something that I've been approaching tangentially in bringing in the mind, but I just I think it's important to state it, which is that the Buddha was not creating a full theory of how the external universe operates. That's often what's being done through science, for example, but that is not actually what the Buddha was doing. Remember, he stated clearly that he teaches in order to end suffering. That's his aim. Suffering or stress or struggle. Those things are something that we experience. Those are experiences. We have the experience of suffering or the experience of being stressed or the experience of anxiety. It's a first-person world the world of what we experience, not the third-person world of Western science, in a sense. So this is maybe the first major divergence, which I don't think that we need to fully digest at the moment, but it's worth stating, is that the realms that modern science and Buddhist practice operate in are different. So the Buddha does talk about the world. It's not, this is not solipsism, where it's only the mind. There are later Buddhist schools that talk about it all being the mind. The early Buddha, Buddhist teachings don't say that. But he, and he does talk about the world, but what he means by the world is the world of sensory experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. In the Buddhist viewpoint, the mind is just the sixth sense. It's just one more sense, like all the other ones. Actually quite equivalent, although it causes a lot more problems. <laughs> um, there's a sutta called the Sabha Sutta, which means the all. And the Buddha says, I will teach you the all. The all consists of the eye and forms, which means things that we see, the eye and forms, ear and sounds, nose and aromas, tongue and flavors, body and tactile sensations, intellect and ideas. This is the world. So he's defining it as the world of experience. And we're using, I mean, this is what we did this morning, right? Is we're using first-person data. So, you know, really what it is that you're experiencing at this moment, that's the data you have to operate with. And what else would there be, really? 
what else would there be? But this was the switch that I talked about when I um, had to make that choice, when I was having an experience that for me was painful and felt like there was something obviously changed about my body, and yet no external measurement was picking it up, at least by regular scientific equipment. That was the shift that I made, is to realize, oh, this is about experience. Um, that was an important shift. So this, um, and then what have we just learned? We've just learned from these distortions that the mind is introducing systematic error into our observations. Not random error, not statistical error, which are easy to correct for, but actual systematic error that we can't control or even completely determine. We're using a warped instrument, essentially. So this becomes interesting, right? Huh. Um, what else am I going to use to observe? And now I sit and meditate and I'm observing the breath. We've been using that term very freely. And I know it's easy. This is one way that scientists can easily hook into meditation is that it's taught as you have an observer and the observer watches experience. But what I'm claiming is that the observer is the one who's subject to these distortions, possibly. Not every moment, maybe. So then we, the question maybe becomes, is it possible to correct this bias? Could, we, could, it, could the instrument be uh, made accurate? So this gets into the realm of the path. It's not exactly that we're fixing the instrument, so everything, all analogies have their limitations. We're not fixing it in an objective way, like you know the telescope isn't working, so I'm going to get in there and, and fix it. But it turns out that the process of tuning the instrument, tuning it up, uh, has important consequences when it's done in the right way. You know, when the in practice instructions are instructions for tuning, tuning the instrument, if you will, and the process of doing that uh, changes the system in, in useful ways. So this takes us then to the important topic of changing our perceptions and views. You know, if we, if we said, well, I don't want to see things that are impermanent as permanent. I want to I not have that perception. I want to see impermanence. What would we do? You know, there are instructions that help us with this. So this is what we're talking about. Or if I wanted to see emptiness, I want to see that things are not self instead of seeing everything in terms of myself well that's an interesting question and it's a process to do that okay so changes in perception so this happens in science of course um, i'll start with a little story so aristotle proclaimed in a treatise written in 350 bce that women have fewer teeth than men so this is in his book, um, his treatise called History of Animals. And he, the statement is, males have more teeth than females in the case of men, sheep, goats, and swine. Aristotle. <laughs> okay? So for around 2,000 years, this idea was basically accepted in the Western world. Um, I don't know that every literal individual person believed that, but the, the history of animals was considered an acceptable text uh, culturally for 2,000 years. 
And then eventually someone had a brilliant idea. Why don't we count? Why don't we count? And then I would say that it probably didn't take very long to discover that women and men have the same number of teeth, actually. I mean, it might have taken a little longer if you wanted a statistical sample, but uh, very quickly you could at least, you could probably pretty easily determine that that was not, it's not true, what Aristotle said. So it didn't take long to disprove that statement, but what took a long time was to generate the mindset that goes and checks statements against observable experience. It's so normal for us, right? We chuckled a little bit at this statement. It's so obvious to us that if you read something like that, you would immediately think in your mind, well, is that true? Why don't I count? <laughs> you know, um, That mindset apparently was not very common for a long time, all through that period of history. So this is this cultural sense of science that has uh, that has pervaded our culture really over the last several hundred years. It has become normal for us to think in this way. But it wasn't, wasn't always the way. So a good thing about science is that it has some built-in correction mechanisms. That's, that's the point, is that we're, there's progress, there's refinement of the understanding. It's actually designed to be able to adjust as we get more data, as we get more accurate data. I think this is one of the brilliant things about it. It's not just, it's not dogmatic in the same way that our, you know, the Buddhist teachings are not inherently dogmatic. But even then, it's not that easy to make a major change in view. I'm now talking about within the scientific world. What does it take to change a scientific view about how something is? Anybody know who that is? Oh, now we're getting into the realm. It's not as easily recognizable. It's also kind of a funky picture with the, that kind of cascading. I don't know why they did it that way. Oh, good, you've seen him before. So that's it. Yeah. So that's Thomas Kuhn, who is the author of this book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And this is a, um, I see some of you nodding. Some, many people have heard of this who are scientists because it's, this is actually the origin of the word paradigm, which has become common in our culture. We now, it's now even out in the popular culture. People will say, oh, there's a change of paradigm to say this or that. Um, but he, he was a physicist originally. He um, started out as a physicist, and then he got interested in the process of doing science. And so he changed and became a philosopher of science. He's a very brilliant man, actually. And he was working in the mid-20th century. And that's when he did his major work. He, um, he died at the end of the 20th century, so no longer alive. <clears throat> and he wrote this book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, that was published in 1962, and the third edition in 96, which is what I have. And it's held up very well for over 50 years. And his, um, his view is that he looked at how is science actually done. We have this cultural myth, and maybe even some scientists carry it along with them, that science is just kind of this linear progression of more and more knowledge about something. And then we refine our, our theories over time, and it's just getting more accurate. Or, and then you know, every now and then we do something different. But it's basically this kind of linear progression. And he says that's actually not how it works. He says there are two um, distinct... Thing. There's, there's a realm of normal science, 
called, where there's basically one paradigm in operation. And you, the purpose is that you're uh, extending, um, refining, and articulating a particular view of how something works. And then what happens is during that period of normal science, there are various exceptions noted. I mean, there's always, we all love studying the anomalies, right? You know, there's the normal stuff and then the anomalous behavior of something or other. And people say, look, here's a system that, that behaves in a weird way. And that's considered good science also. And those are kind of cataloged uh, as we go along in normal science, we, get, we catalog various exceptions. And what happens is that over time, serious anomalies start to pile up at, to the point where there are just experimental results that don't conform to the paradigm. And there's no choice but to say, I wonder if the paradigm isn't working. And so then there's a, what this is called a crisis. So there precipitates a crisis where people say, all right, we've got to, we, this isn't working. We have to completely replace it. And scientists will actually turn and look at the paradigm itself when enough evidence builds up that it's not working. And so then there's what's called a paradigm change. And so um, Kuhn talks about paradigm shifts as changes in worldview. He actually talks, when I, I first read this book in graduate school, and I thought it was interesting at the time, um, you know, oh, it tells about how science is done. I was kind of interested in that topic also. When I read it again recently, I was like, oh, He's talking with a sort of a Buddhist lens. It's like, oh, he's talking about changes in perception. He's talking about what we have to do on the path. So he says here, paradigms are not correctable by normal science at all. Instead, normal science leads only to the recognition of anomalies and to crises. These crises are terminated not by deliberation and interpretation, but by a relatively sudden and unstructured event like a gestalt switch. Scientists then speak of the scales falling from the eyes or of the lightning flash that inundates a previously obscure puzzle, enabling its components to be seen in a new way that for the first time permits its solution. He's talking about insight. And once you've seen something in a different way, you can't unsee that. You can't unsee that. So an example in science the, you know, would be the crisis that came about at the end of the 19th century, came about during 19th century physics, where uh, it was realized that uh, Newtonian theory was not working. It didn't apply very well, especially to light. And eventually it led to Einstein's theory of relativity in 1905. Newton's theory is excellent. It's actually still, it's perfectly fine as a first approximation but it increasingly could not work as scientists learn more and more about light and electromagnetic radiation. I chose this example, there's, there's many, many examples of paradigm shifts in science, but I chose that one in particular because what happened with Einstein's theory of relativity was that we had to give up the notion of absolute space, understanding instead that space and time are relative. There's no reference frame, and this is relevant for meditation also. It's kind of dharmic, actually. So another thing that Thomas Kuhn said was, the answers you get depend upon the questions you ask. And when you're operating within a particular paradigm, 
you know, that's the way you see things. You have to see in line with that. And it's very hard to see differently than that. Very hard. You can't actually, it's very hard to, you can't will yourself out of it, basically. This is why it's so important to know what your intention is. Because the answers you get depend upon the questions you ask. That's why I ask, why do you practice? Not because you need to have the single answer. That's just the mind trying to find permanence where there's impermanence. (laughs) But if you don't know what you're aiming for, um, it'll be hard to get there. Or more specifically, where, where you think you're aiming affects where you get. So if you're aiming at the end of suffering, that will help you get there. And if that's not what you're aiming at, I don't know that you'll get there. Okay, so then we we ask, based on all that background, we can ask, what is the process in meditation? We're all living in our personal paradigm of whatever our worldview is right now. And we would like, maybe, to have a change in view, such that the first step of the path is wise view. What is that? How do we learn to see such that we're not subject to those four distortions? So this is a <laughs> this is a picture that starts giving us a clue about this. Um, so there's this there starts to be this I I want to bring in this idea of direct knowledge, and direct knowledge is not always easy to understand what it is, or direct knowing. Maybe it's direct knowing is better, so it's not really a noun. Especially, uh, this is especially knowing that comes through the body, non-cognitively. So when we sit in meditation, we're, you know, we're gathering data, basically. Um, Lots and lots of data as we watch things arise and pass. And eventually, by watching arising and passing, you know, why is that given as a meditation instruction? It's so we build up evidence that things are not permanent. It works directly against that first distortion where we tend to believe that things are, we're a solid self operating in a world of external entities. And so, but if we sit and observe that things arise and pass, starting with the sensations of the breath and going to our thoughts, our feelings, everything else, happening in the body and the mind, we start to get evidence that things are not so permanent and there will eventually precipitate some kind of crisis. We, seem to, we notice that things seem to have holes in them and that they don't last forever. A common example is if you have pain in the body, the instruction is, you know, don't just wish it wasn't there, look at the pain. So actually go and feel the actual sensations associated with that pain. And usually we'll discover that pain is not a solid wall that we call pain, but it's actually a whole bunch of little microscopic uh, sensations zipping in and out of, of existence, little flashes of heat, of stabbing, of aching, whatever it is. And, it's, and the whole thing is probably like a cubic millimeter or maybe it's a little bit bigger, but it feels like if we're not looking that carefully, it looks like a solid wall. But when it breaks up, it becomes very hard to see it as solid anymore. We start to see the impermanence of pain. We also notice that things in the mind come and go. For example, there may be desire for a cookie, 
But if we just keep sitting and we don't get the cookie, the desire actually will go away eventually. Or at least it'll have holes in it. Even if you really, really want that cookie and so you keep going back and saying, well, actually, I do still want that cookie. Kim's wrong. The desire hasn't gone away. There were probably moments where you forgot about it for a few minutes, seconds while you were, you know, because mindfulness doesn't, isn't that continuous. And so what we learn is that desire comes and goes also. And if we keep watching, we may experience some degree of the happiness that comes with the ending of the wanting. You know, we have this desire. Desire is actually kind of unpleasant uh, to have that feeling of lack, of I need something. And then if we sit long enough and it goes away, say, never mind, the cookie doesn't matter, there's actually a little bit of ease in that. Huh, free, free of that need for the cookie. And so we begin to suspect just a little suspicion that there are more ways to be happy than just getting our desires fulfilled. So all of this, these are just little examples of ways that our direct understanding during meditation starts to chip away at the, those views of the four distortions. So, but all this does depend on seeing directly um, and not just thinking about concepts. So that's what this diagram shows, is it shows that when we're thinking, it's very complicated. <laughs> it gets very complicated very quickly. Um, I love that thing you said earlier where when we, we're squeezing on something, thoughts are what come out. <laughs> so if we're squeezing on our experience of I want this, I need this, I'm afraid of this, I, I hate that, what comes out of that squeezing is lots of thoughts about who's to blame, what can I do, how can I figure this out, how can I do better next time, what if it doesn't change, oh no, etc. Um, a lot of that. Whereas direct knowing is pretty simple. It's like stuff comes, stuff goes. You know, there's body sensations, there's thoughts, there's emotions, etc. So part of our, this isn't always immediately obvious to us. I'm, I, this is done pretty starkly, but it's not that obvious to us sometimes in our experience to what degree we are conceptualizing and to what degree we are actually experiencing something. So we need to under, begin to, that's one of the first things we tease apart. I don't know if it's the first, it might be maybe the last, I don't know. <laughs> we tease apart what is understood and cognitively and what is actually experienced. Ajahn Chah said, everybody wants direct experience, but very few know what it is. Or, if you prefer a Western view, Heraclitus in the 6th century BCE said, Knowing many things doesn't teach insight. It's not the same as knowing. As know, what we know uh, isn't necessarily the same as, as having that insight, having that moment when we, when we break out of the way of seeing that we've had before and we see something different and then we can't go back. We can't unsee. The Buddha described three kinds of wisdom in uh, one of the suttas. And the first is called suttamayapanya, which means wisdom that comes from hearing. That's, um, that sutta is not the same as sutta like discourse. Discourse is S-U-T-T-A, and this is S-U-T-A. Sutta, in that case, means hearing. It literally means the faculty of hearing. And at the time of the Buddha, that, that meant that 
that was how you received teachings. They didn't have the books, they didn't have the internet. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to get teachings, you had to go hear somebody speak them. And so people who um, were learned uh, were sutavant, people who, are, um, who had heard, and people who were learned. And so there's wisdom that comes from, from hearing teachings like this or from hearing on audio dharma, for example. That's helpful. It's good. If we don't get that information, at least for most of us, we don't have the um, capacity to figure all of it out. That's what's really special about the Buddha is he didn't get Buddhist teachings, but he figured it out by himself. He was the first one. And then because of him, we have these teachings. So the rest of us who aren't quite as clever as that uh, can learn also. So it's useful to hear, to hear the Dharma. And then, the, but that's just the first kind. And by the way, all these three are necessary. It's not like um, one. Of, it's not like you should just skip to the third one. You, you need to have all of them. <laughs> so the the second one is called Chintamayapanya, which means basically wisdom that comes from thought and reflection. So you remember when I read that um, from uh, this from this book when I was talking about the progress of the path and started with faith and then hearing the Dharma. Then there was that section about reflective acceptance. He memorized the Dharma and then you think about it. And that's how you decide that you're willing to go forth with practice. And so this is another kind of wisdom is when we really reflect carefully, does this make sense for my life? You know, what I'm being told, does that actually, is that relevant for me at all? So I certainly found the teachings very relevant when I first heard them. I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be useful for me in some way. I had that intuitive sense, and I thought about them. Um, we often, the, the teachings on aging, illness, and death are particularly poignant because we all know that's coming. <laughs> and so when we learn that the teachings that we hear address this directly and say, yeah, actually, those, those issues, aging, illness, death, we're going to do those, then often that helps people realize, oh, this is, this is going to be helpful for me. So we have to have at some level some, some personal sense that it's going to be what we want. This is going to be good for us. And then the, the third kind of wisdom is called bhavana mayapanya. And bhavana means cultivation. And so this is the wisdom that comes through practice. We have to actually do it. So we have to actually do it And so eventually, um, that's what comes through direct experience. And the Buddha is clear that this is the only one that's liberating. Uh, Just hearing and even just reflecting are not quite, they don't go quite all the way. So I want to share a a quote from Gregory Kramer. He's a, a... Dharma teacher who originally had a degree in physics and then went on and did some other things and eventually became a Dharma teacher. And he says, there is a movement from understanding by view to reflective examination to the cultivation of meditative qualities as an essential support for penetrating further. Going to the edge of the precipice of real understanding apprehending in experience what the Buddha can only point to with words. So all these words are meant to point to something. They're meant to point to our own experience. The words themselves are useful. 
They help us orient. They help us know what to do in meditation, to have instructions. And then what really is going to do the transformation is to do it, to build up the data, to observe what's going on, and eventually there can be this, this change of view. But we can't force it any more than science can just force the new way of seeing things. It took a long time. The first little question about Newtonian mechanics was actually given by Leibniz, who was a contemporary of Newton in 1720, roughly. And it was completely forgotten about. What he objected to was just brushed under the rug. And then only in the early 1800s did there start to be ideas that mm, maybe this doesn't quite add up. But we could still, there was still kind of jury rigging of the theory and so forth. And then eventually, you know, with things like the Michelson-Morley experiment, if you don't know these references, it's okay. Uh, it, it took all the way until kind of the second half of the 19th century, the 1800s, before there was just enough evidence that people said, this just, we can't jury rig this anymore. And then there could be relativity in 1905 and quantum mechanics shortly after that. It took a whole century of good, smart people taking data. So this is the process. <laughs> so we'll meditate on that as we go through our progression of hearing and reflecting and then meditating. That's the process we're doing today also. But I think um, for our bodies, we'll take about a 10-minute break now if you want to use the bathroom or um, reflect. And then we'll come back at 2.10 for meditation. <laughs>